Okay, and I just want to say um, a welcome to everybody. It's really nice to see so many new faces. Um, and welcome to our um, SRHE Widening Participation Network event, which is um, looking at forming aspirations in the STEM subjects. Um, you have the program in front of you, so I won't go into detail, but just to say that um, we really do hope that we have the opportunity to engage with the presentations and have plenty of discussion. So after a tea break, we will have a longer um, uh, period for our discussion, and then we'll have short bursts after each of the presentations. Um, the presentations will be about 40 to 45 minutes long. And um, just to really, really encourage you to um, participate in the discussion, because part of these networks are our opportunity to um, think about research around our own particular professional and research uh, concerns. Um, so really making connections is, is um, one of the benefits of coming to these events. Okay, so I'm going to then just pass on to our first speaker, and I'm delighted <coughs> that Professor Louise Archer has agreed to speak today. Um, her, the title of her presentation is I Like Science, but I Don't Want to Be a Scientist, Understanding 10 to 14-Year-Old Science and Career Aspirations. So Louise, I'll hand over to you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to be here today. Um, I should just, does that work? Ah, fantastic. So I'm going to talk to you about some uh, research that we've been doing over the past four years, and it's looking at children's science and career aspirations. So I suppose the first question that comes to mind is, well, why on earth look at aspirations? Very few of us probably um, aspired when we were young children, aged 10 to 14, to do what we do today. I certainly didn't dream as a young girl of that being a professor, um, something far more exciting. I think. But so 10 to 14 has been shown um, by the existing research to be quite an important time for young people to start thinking about what they want to do in the future. And although, as we know, aspirations are not predictive of what you're going to do in the future, some research suggests that they can show quite a strong probability of the <coughs> sorts of things you're likely to end up doing. So big-scale research by people like Kroll and research by Thai and colleagues in the States. Uh, for example, the latter has shown that students at the age of 14 who've got science or STEM-related aspirations are over th almost three and a half times more likely to end up doing a degree in the physical sciences or engineering when, when they're older. So it's not predictive, but they, they can often tell us something. Another reason for looking at aspirations is that they're a key area of uh, policy interest. There's an intense, in the UK, interest, often issues are framed in terms of, well, we need to raise aspirations if we're going to increase whether it's attainment or participation or so on. And lots of initiatives are also built around the idea of um, you know, raising young people's aspirations to go to STEM, for example. And finally, I'm a sociologist of education, uh, education person, so I have a sociological interest in aspirations. I think there can be interesting social phenomena which can tell us about young people and how they see the world and how their identities and the inequalities that they experience shape what they see as possible and desirable in their futures. So the ASPARS study that I'm going to be talking about is a five-year study that we had funded by the ESRC and it's a mixed method study, and we've been basically tracking young people from the age of 10 up to the age of 14 at three points, so year 6, year 8, and year 9. And I'm going to talk about the phase 1 and 2 data today, because phase 3 is, we're literally 
the survey is about to finish right in a couple of weeks and we've almost completed all our interviews for that. So just phase one and two is the collected and analysed data. So, so our first phase survey was a national survey of pupils in their last year of primary school, aged 10 11. So we got um, over 9,000 of those. And we also did these 170 interviews with selected young people and their parents. And it's the same young people that we've been picking up again in phase two and phase three. And obviously when they got to secondary school in year eight, we did another survey, so over 5,600, and we managed to re into 85 of the 92 children, which wasn't too bad. As I said, phase three is ongoing now. And alongside that, we've also been working with um, groups of teachers in London schools to try and develop ways of integrating STEM careers awareness messages into their mainstream science teaching. But I won't focus on that today. That save that for another time. So drawing on our, our surveys in particular, uh, we were interested in well, what do young people aspire to? Do they have this sort of notional poverty of aspirations that policy often goes on about? Generally, as a top-line figure, we found that most of the young people express what we could call generally high aspirations. So most of them aspire to professional, technical and managerial jobs. Very few of them wanted to work in, for example, the skilled manual trades or, or work more quite, quite working-class professions. As you can see, over 90% aspire to make a lot of money. 72% uh, say their parents expect them to go or want them to go to expect them sorry, to go to university, which again is higher than actual participation rates. So I think again it's just sort of making the point that aspirations don't unproblematically translate into outcomes. But as a general aspiration, that is quite high. Um, over 50% also aspired to be famous. Sigh. Um, so again, the, the, uh, the X factor celebrity uh, culture there. But at the same time, as you can see from the figures below, it, it wasn't all uh, grasping money and fame. Uh, they also wanted work-life balance. Um, you know, over 96% think it's important to have a family, be able to help others. 78% want a career that will make a difference in the world. So, so there is a balance there. So as it says at the bottom, the careers in art, sports, medicine and teaching were, were popular, the most popular across both the primary and secondary age pupils. And business also suddenly came in for the year eight pupils as incredibly popular as well. So you can see, we asked a range of different questions about aspirations. We did open-ended, closed-ended, all different sorts. So this is just one of the... Um, questions, which is a closed uh, answer response, asking children how much they'd like to do these. And as you can see, it's for year eight people, age 12, 13, business, massively popular. Um, I think it's like the Alan Sugar apprentice effect. Um, art showed this, but, but poor old science comes right down low at the end. So we're interested, well, why, why is you know, arts really popular, but science not so popular? But it wasn't that science itself wasn't popular, it's that science careers aren't popular. So, as you see here, science was the fourth most popular subject in our survey, but particularly among girls. Girls are more likely to claim it's their favourite subject. And as you can see, over 70%, so the majority of students in Year 6 and Year 8, all said that they agreed that they learn interesting things in science. And this was across a range of measures. So, they were generally saying, we like our science lessons, which I think is an important thing to note, that it was both in primary and in secondary as well. The, the children from primary went to masses of different secondary schools, so it wasn't just a school effect in that sense. So there's something that's not actually that bad going on in early secondary science. Um, 
And again, it, was, you know, it wasn't just the teachers who tend to always get blamed for everything. Uh, over 80% of the pupils in Year 8 say so they have enthusiastic teachers who expect their pupils to do well, a range of measures like that. And at Year 8, we were finding only 19% said it was difficult. Other surveys like the Welcome Monitor with older age groups suggest that might go up. But. And it also wasn't that children had really negative view of science careers <coughs> either. So I said, you know, what do you think about careers in science? Again, a whole range of me measures, and you can see there, over 73% agree that science is generally useful. Uh, it's useful for getting a good job. 79% think scientists do valuable work. So they're saying, you know, there's broadly positive views of the work that science, people who work in science do. 62% they're respected by society, and 63% think they make a lot of money as well. So it's not that they're being seen particularly negatively in that way. But it's led to what we've termed the being-doing divide. So basically, this graph showing that across the two surveys, they, as we said, they generally think they like science at school, they say their parents think science is important, they think they have positive views of scientists, the middle bar. They also do quite a lot of science activities, or they report doing science-related activities out of school too. But then it crashes down at the end, I like science, I just don't want to be a scientist, or have a science-related job. Why is that? One way of looking at it is, well, who does want to do science? And this would be very familiar to you, I'm sure, that when you, although, as we said before, girls and boys equally like science, girls like it almost a bit more than boys, more boys than girls aspire to do science uh, careers, 18% to 12. They're more likely to be middle-class pupils or more affluent pupils, so 23 to 8% there. And they're more likely to be South Asian um, or minority ethnic pupils expressing an interest in it. You can see the, the figures there. So we're interested in, well, what shapes these patterns? What shapes both the likelihood of very few people even wanting to do this in the first place and what shapes the profile of the few who do want to do it? And so the three things I'm going to try and highlight uh, today are the role of families, popular perceptions of science as brainy, and gender. So to explain the role of families, to start off, we, we've developed two concepts um, to, to help us understand this. So the first concept is what we call science capital. So science capital really is trying to use a kind of catch, uh, a term to capture science-related qualifications, science-related knowledge, interest, what we might call scientific literacy, and contacts, knowing people who work, for example, in STEM careers. And our research, as I'll discuss, is showing a link between the amount of science capital that a family has and the likelihood of the child expressing science aspirations. And we're going to suggest that science capital is very unevenly spread in society. It's predominantly the middle-class families who are likely to have it, if anyone. And capital is important for growing and nurturing science aspirations. So it can help make science visible, in children's lives, um, they can sort of see it in the, the sorts of activities that their families do. It can give them practical skills, practical opportunities for mastering science. If you're building your, uh, quote one example, a, a lava, an olive oil lava lamp in your kitchen with your parents for fun activities, and it can generate this notion of the valuing of science, seeing science as valuable. The second concept that we've developed that I'm going to talk about in relation to families is the idea of family habitus. So this um, does draw on Bourdieu. Apologies to people who find sociology terrible and full of horrendous uh, acronyms and jargon. 
Um, but Bourdieu's concepts of habitus, capital, and field, we think, are useful, or can be useful here. So Bourdieu is obviously interested in the interplay between agency and structure, so the extent to which we, we may have free choice, but not within the conditions of our own choosing. And Bourdieu talks about habitus primarily in terms of an individual habitus, the idea of the internal matrix of dispositions which people have, which kind of guide your actions, which uh, give you that practical understanding, that feel for the world, what's seen as normal and desirable, um, which is formed through you know, a long process of socialisation and so on. Bourdieu talks about institutional habitus as well, but we wondered whether habitus could actually be useful for understanding the way that families work and create this sort of sense of who we are, what people like us do. So we've applied it to that, or we've tried to test it out with families here, which we think is particularly useful for understanding younger children's aspirations because they're quite embedded within families in that way. And so we're going to suggest that it's the interaction between science capital and family habitus <coughs> which can help us understand some of the patterns in who does and doesn't see So when we looked across our interview sample in particular, we were quite struck by the number, when we asked them about all their aspirations, who aspired to the same job as a family member or a close friend. And although you could find this across all children, it was particularly the children from middle-class backgrounds who were aspiring to medicine, teaching and other professions. There's often this explicit sort of notion of, oh, this is kind of a family tradition, this is what my family do. And, and that's not that surprising because it's what's known, it's what you sort of see every day. So, so working-class students are much less likely to aspire to a family member's career. They're more likely to use a discourse of trying to get on and do better and being encouraged to do so. Um, but we found some examples of alignment over time. So, for example, Leilani is a working-class girl who, when I interviewed her in primary school, she wanted to be an architect or a zookeeper. And then when I came back to her in year eight, she said, well, she was much more going down the food and the cooking route, because as she says here, you know, mum always says you're a good cook, grandma says we've got cooking in the family, her mum worked in Starbucks, um, her brother was a chef, her stepbrother was a chef. Um, and so it was seen as she was sort of drifting more towards one, well, you know, this is what's normal for us. Conversely, we had middle class kids who, to take one example, uh, there was a boy who in year eight was from a very middle class um, uh, a, a family. His father was a consultant doctor med- um, in the medical profession, and he initially wanted to be a fireman in year six because he gets to squirt a hose and spray water everywhere, why not? Uh, but by year eight, he'd very much fallen into line of no, no, I'm going to go to university and have a professional career and probably go into medicine or, or another profession. So they weren't necessarily aware, able to articulate it, but they, they, we could see this sort of pattern of sorting, you know, going along family lines over time. So what creates this? Well, we think it's partly the power of the family habitual practices which are important in the values. The, the sort of unspoken notion of what do people like us do and it comes through in this very um, powerful but yet subtle daily reinforcement in which some career paths appear to be more natural or obvious or thinkable than others. So lots of girls in our sample, uh, all, as you can imagine, all wanted to aspire to do either childcare or teaching, working with children in some way. And lots of them would talk about, well, you know, I'm always babysitting my cousins and, or my mum and dad always tell me you're so good with your baby sister this feeling of you know what you're competent at, what you're good at, what you do, what you know is always coming through and quite powerfully structuring aspirations. 
So the extent to which science was visible or familiar in, in everyday family life was quite important. So as I said, some families were providing lots and lots of um, opportunities for children to get a feel for science, to see it as normal, to see it as something that we like, what we discuss, it's what we read in the papers, it's what programmes we watch on TV and so on. And so this cultivates that perception of science as, as desirable and as normal and a part of who we are. But it wasn't only the families that had science. So some families, some middle-class families, also draw on their family habitus to compensate when they didn't have, a lack, when they didn't have so much science capital. So uh, Luna was a girl who, when I interviewed her in primary school, she was incredibly passionate about science. She absolutely loved it. She loved space in particular. And she had this long-standing desire to go into a sort of science-related or space-related career. Her family are very sort of self-described as artsy and bohemian. They're saying they don't really know that much about science. But her mother really supported this and wanted to pick up her aspiration and run with it. And so she went out of her way. She used her knowledge of the system and her contacts to arrange all sorts of extracurricular activities for Luna. You know, they would go to the science fairs at, at nearby towns or cities and... They would watch science, Brian Cox, of course, uh, all together. Um, there was a bit of the Cox phenomenon going on in our sample. Um, but there is a question, of when we came to our year eight, of how sustainable that is. So it was very good and it was very useful and it did give her lots of support and capital and sustained aspiration. But now, and having just spoken to her very recently, um, Luna doesn't any longer aspire to a science career. So it's a question of how sustainable the capital is versus the actual capital. And the science capital also we found important not only for uh, encouraging children to develop science aspirations, so the more capital the family has, the more likely they are to aspire to science, but even those children who didn't aspire to science, where their families had lots of science capital, they were much more likely to still want to continue studying science because they had a strong notion of the value of science for citizenship. So they'd say, I want to be an author, but I know that studying you know, triple science and doing science at A-level will actually stand me in good stead in the future in job terms. Or whatever. So we had this notion of science as transferable and as valuable for, in its own right, much more so than other children. So against the science capital-rich families who are fostering and promoting their children's engagement and in ways that I obviously embarrassingly do constantly with my own children... It's the weekend, let's go to a museum or science museum. They're also the children who had science aspirations, but whose family had no science capital really to speak of at all. So we classified these children as having what we call raw aspirations. So it's often the child would self-describe this, say, I'm really into science, I want to aspire to a career in science. But their families, you'd say, Well, what do they think about science? Well, they don't, you know, I don't really know what I think about science. Uh, they never talk about it. And we suggest that this kind of provides, although the child has the interest, they're kind of not a very fertile soil that they're rooted in. And this has the potential to, we would predict that these are the children who are going to be most likely of losing their science aspirations over time and you know, being interested in other things or pulled elsewhere. So the vast majority of our sample um, with uh, children who described, so they said, science is interesting, but it's not for me. And so there's just an example there of um, one child is we call, uh, called it Dr. McTavish. So he said, I'm really into science, but a lot of the 
science activities he did in his own time with this sort of putting Mentos in a Coke bottle and exploding it, that sort of thing. And typically, typically of many of his peers, he said he described his family, he had no idea or not a clue what his family think about science and he didn't have science aspirations. Among this, I mean, he's incredibly typical of most of, many of the young people in our sample. So we also found that the working class children in our sample were more likely to be overrepresented as being in this kind of group of children. And in these families, the family habitus, uh, rather than being the concerted cultivation, as Annette Leroux calls it, the kind of you know, hothousing your child every opportunity, it was much more likely to be a parental uh, approach of the what Leroux calls the accomplishment of natural growth. So the kind of, as long as they're happy, let them grow and be who they're going to be. And in these families, science was described much more through its absence than, you, than its presence. So there's just a couple of quotes there, so a parent saying, I suppose, every day, you don't get much to do with science, do you? So no notion that sort of science is, is kind of everywhere. And whenever I present this talk to a room full of scientists, they always laugh at that one, because it's the idea, for, 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 yeah, for obviously from the science community, that you, know, you can't see where science is, is sort of unusual. Whereas for these families, it's like they literally can't see it, but it feels so unfamiliar. Um, and Lucy and Jack are young people who have said, yeah, I've never asked my family about science. We just never talk about it. It's not there. It's kind of peripheral. So generally, in the families in our study, there's a, a lack of science capital, we'd say, and um, we'd say, and this is particularly shown through a lack of awareness of where science complications could lead to. So across our sample, generally, children tended to name three sorts of careers that science, you know, science careers, uh, qualifications lead to: so scientist, science teacher, and doctor. And there's very little awareness generally that science qualifications might be transferable more widely in the job market or that they could potentially be useful for a range of careers. So in sum, we feel that it's the family uh, values and practices that are very powerful and can make science more thinkable or not. And as I said, that the more science capital a family has, the more likely their child is to aspire to science, particularly when that's coupled with this sort of family habitus of the um, the uh, the kind of um, concerted cultivation of, of young people. And that's more likely to be middle-class families. So these different forms of capital see all interact with the family habitus, which can grow the likelihood of children having science aspirations or not. And the result is basically that some families are much better equipped to foster and sustain aspirations than other science aspirations than others. But we also felt that the, the kind of widespread lack of science capital among our families <coughs> is also exacerbated by the, the lack of careers education in Key Stage 3 as well. So, I mean, as we know, uh, I think Michael Gove is on a one-man mission to destroy any form of careers education that could possibly <laughs> exist, um, picking it off. But we were quite struck that in our, in our sample, um, particularly you know, in, in the Year 8 interviews as well, very, very few children were actually getting any careers education of any sort at all. Only four out of our 85 interviews could actually even remember anything related at all. And it is making us think, well, I think there are debates to be had about what sort of careers education is useful, and I'm definitely not saying that the kind of, you know, the one-size-fits-all is, is the way forward. But there is an issue, and is it too little too late? Because most of these young people have kind of made up their views by now that science is not for me, and that's not something that, you know, if I'm not going to become a scientist, a science teacher, or a doctor, 
why on earth would I study it further? And we've got lots of quotes along, along those lines. So the second aspect that I wanted to talk about was the popular view in our sample that science is only for the brainy. So as you can see there, in both surveys so far, over 80% of um, the people, young people have said have associated scientists as brainy. And in some ways, this is sort of, it, it's not uncomplimentary, but we do think it's actually very problematic if you're interested in the notion of science for all. And the upshot is that science careers are widely seen as only for the exceptional few. And the upshot of that is that we've got masses of people who are interested in science who are actually not doing badly in it, but who are already, by year eight, can say that, well, if I'm not one of the top two brainiest kids in the class, I'm not going to do science. Science isn't for me. So there's a quote there um, by Sandra, um, who's the mother of someone who's called Danielle in the study, and she said that her daughter Danielle said, oh, you have to be really clever to study science. You have to be a geek. And she says, I'm not clever enough to be good at science. Now, Danielle describe, says to us in, in her interviews that science is her favourite subject. It's one of her favourite subjects in school. She loves it. Um, but she sees her, and her mother see herself as an average, a middling pupil. She's fine, but already it, seeing it, you know, it's, I'm not good enough to do that. And dominant notions of cleverness, as other research um, that other people and, and that we've been involved in tells us, that no, dominant notions of cleverness are very much racialised class and gendered discourses. And the extent to which you can see yourself as able to be a brainy or very clever pupil is not so much structured by your attainment, but by your identity and the inequalities as to, you know, girls and uh, working class and minority ethnic students are far more likely to have difficulty inhabiting an authentic uh, identity as being, you know, seen in, as clever or good and irrespective of their attainment. And then the third area, which kind of intersects with that as well, is gender, which um, obviously quite well known in relation to STEM participation. So, as I said at the start, higher percentage of year eight girls than boys rated science as their favourite subject, but more boys than girls aspired to science careers. And as you see there, the question was asked, well, what's, what's the right number? What percentage should we be expecting of young people to aspire to careers in science? You know, we wouldn't expect 80%. But I think without being able to, I think it, it, the short answer is it's impossible to say in some ways, but I think the fact that you've, going, you know, you've got 18% of boys and 12% of girls aspiring to science, but 64% of girls aspiring to careers in the arts, I think shows a disparity in terms of what's seen as attractive or accessible, but also it raises issues in terms of what's actually feasible. I don't think 64% of the, you know, the sector jobs are in the arts. And, uh, so there's, there's things around... You know, if STEM, some areas of STEM careers are also predicted to grow in the future, as they are, is there a sort of mismatch there as well, which might be worth um, exploring? So, what puts girls off science aspirations? Unsurprisingly, they obviously have uh, views of science as male-dominated. And this was among um, young people and parents. The quote there that science, well, it's not sexy, it's not glamorous, so it's not girly, it's not sexy, it's not glamorous, came from a parent. That was a mother of, a, of, a, of a, a girl in our study. And we found that the more, quote, uh, girly girls are less ex likely to express science aspirations. We think this is because 
there's this thing of a lack of fit. It doesn't seem an easy fit with popular notions of femininity or what it means to be a normal or a popular or a desirable girl. It doesn't seem to fit with the image that most young people have of what a science career would look like or be about. And some also, I think it's important to say, have negative experiences of being in science spaces. Not generally in their lessons, as we saw earlier, most of them like their science lessons at school. But people like Danielle, who I just mentioned uh, before, she, uh, well, who, she, yeah, she loved science, but she'd actually been along to um, an after-school science club, and of course she was the only girl there, so she only went once or twice because she didn't like it and she didn't want to be on her own and didn't go again. But of course there were girls in our study who did aspire to sort of science critics, so we thought, well, what, what is it about them that makes it fit, that makes them able to be able to do it, manage that, manage that aspiration and that identity? So in our year six and our year eight samples, we basically identified, they roughly, the girls fell into kind of two types. We had the girls who were identifying the science um, through a feminine science identity, they were what we loosely called the feminine scientists, and they were, then there were the girls who self-consciously de defined themselves as not girly, and they were highly academic, and they were what we called the blue-stocking scientists, so it's a foreground in their academicness. So these girls were finding challenges, obviously, in balancing their femininity and their science aspirations. So as Hannah says there, she, she aspires to a career in science, and she says, well, but we're kind of the nerds, so there's this acknowledgement. And Davina there um, says, well, she, you know, she exemplifies this, saying, I'd say there's two types of people that are into science. Either there are the ones who are really like geeky people, or there are the people who are like me, who aren't geeky, but they have a knack for it. I also play guitar and do rowing, and obviously the girly stuff that other normal girls do. So for the girls who were like Davina more feminine in their, their identification, girly, as they put it, they actually had to do a lot of balancing of their science aspirations. They did quite a lot of identity work around making it acceptable and how they did their identities. And the parents of some of these girls also described this as well. So there's um, one parent in the study who was describing her daughter and saying, I'm really pleased she wants to go into a science career. She herself obviously had, had a career, in, uh, she was a chemist, she had a background in science. And she said, but I'm really pleased that, unlike me, my daughter also knows how to put a good outfit together and she can be, and she actually used the word normal as well. So there is this sort of recognition this, that this extra effort and struggle that has to go on kind of almost like highlights the unsaid, which is the masculinity of the science career, which is kind of left untapped, but they have to do lots of juggling. The, they were very academic girls as well, so sort of talking back to the, the brainy point, feminine scientists, girls, and blue-stocking girls were all highly academic, but some balanced it with popular femininity and some didn't. The blue-stocking girls, it was more of a natural fit because they weren't doing girliness, they weren't really trying to engage with that at all. Uh, but we did see between year six and year eight um, a decline in the number of girls who were doing the girly feminine scientist identity compared to the others. So at year six, we had a much um, about six girls who were doing feminine scientist identity and about 16, 17 who were doing the blue-stocking identity, aspiring to science. By year eight, the whole number had decreased and there's only one girl, I think, uh, who was still a feminine scientist. And that was the bit Davina. Um, the others were aspiring otherwise. So it is 
it's a tricky thing and these girls given they're still only in year eight it's a long way to go to maintain that level of work to reconcile it she also looked at our boys how are they aspiring to science and again we found two types basically the same sort of idea um, the ones who are doing popular masculinity so the boys we called the cool footballer scientists uh, who are emphasising that they like fashion, skateboarding, football, sports, that sort of thing. And then um, the ones we call the young professors, who are, again, just doing the academic side, not doing the popular masculinity side. Like the girls, these children are all highly, highly academic. First and foremost, they're high achievers. They'll tell you that in interviews. Their parents will tell you that, and so on. So the cool footballer scientists, they uh, were often using sport uh, and other popular markers of, of popular masculinity. So there's just a quote there from Gerard saying, now no one can accuse me of being a geek because of my size. He was absolutely enormous, he was massive. Um, being good at football really helps. Because um, I was asked, if I was no good at sport, people would think I'm a geek. So again, you have to have those, those resources to be able to draw on to balance it. Uh, and embodied resources as well, so they're quite you know, difficult to achieve. Uh, whereas the young professors sort of embraced it a bit more, so Victor was saying, I've been called a geek and a goody two shoes quite a lot. And uh, Ned was a boy in an independent school who had quite mad hair, and he said, Well, you know, he wanted to aspire to science. I think my hair would suit the job as a mad scientist. So. But in contrast with the girls, where there were very, very few of the girl, fe girly feminine ones and lots of the blue stocking ones, with the, the, there were many more of the cool football scientist boys, and actually, there were more of them at year eight than there were of the young professors. So it wasn't, although the boys balancing it too, it's just not quite as difficult. It's fitting because it's the fit with masculinity is easier. So it just doesn't seem to be quite as much as a problem balancing it for the boys. So, think about some implications. Well, we think, first of all, that uh, the policy discourse really should think about shifting in, em in, in emphasis. There's been a lot of emphasis to date on trying to increase interest in science. And lots of the interventions that we see that are out there are all focused on, let's make science fun. Well, I've got nothing against making science fun, but to be honest, I don't think that's the problem, because most of our survey samples, they like science, they're interested, they just want, don't want to do it in the future. So I think, you know, the, the notion that liking science is not enough could be useful for, for helping move on policy discourse in this area. I think there's also a key challenge in how we make STEM aspirations thinkable, achievable and conceivable for everyone. And I think some of this is also structural as well. So you can take the issue around the, the kids' feeling that you, know, you have to be brainy to be a scientist. But actually at the moment, if you get a B in science at GCSE, a lot of schools will not let you on to science A-level because you have to get an A or an A star. And that isn't the same in every subject. And I think actually here we do have a structural issue. that We actually have a potential pool of kids who've got B at GCSE. It's not bad. They've got nowhere to go. So we can, if, if we want to challenge the brainy image, some of that has to relate to the structural context. Because at the moment, we can say, oh, you know, let's have images of scientists who aren't all brainy. But actually, if you literally can't continue with it without an A star, then there's a, a discordance there. So I think there is a value in some more diverse post-16 routes uh, in science and maths. This is obviously starting to happen in maths. There's a, you know, lots of moves around in you know, maths, um, having maths up to 18 in, in some form. And I think it raises some interesting questions for science as well. It's like, 
what do we want from people um, to be scientifically literate in society? Is that, is that job done at 16? Do our young people who only get to GCSE, you know, do they have <coughs> the, the, the skills that are massively important and transferable, you know, can help your employability? Or could there be other options for them after 16? So I see it, that incorporates challenging the perceptions of science as, as clever and masculine. And I think it does raise the challenge of this vision of science science for all, because I don't think we have it post-16 at the moment. And part of the making the, the STEM aspirations thinkable obviously has to engage with gender and class and, and <coughs> ethnicity as well. Uh, there has been work within the field of gender and education which has suggested that teaching young people and their teachers how to um, deconstruct gender stereotypes can be quite a useful and fruitful way forward, much more so than just presenting alternative positive images or role models of scientists, which we know also are quite tricky because you don't just, you know, um, just because you have a role model doesn't mean that you're going to aspire to want to be like them or see them as like you or see that as like We think there's a, a need for the redistribution of science capital as well. Um, as we see at the moment, most people don't have a notion of STEM as valuable or transferable as a qualification. It's only to get to science teacher, doctor or, or um, scientist. And so we wonder whether embedding some more STEM careers messages throughout the curriculum could be one way forward. Um, if there isn't um, a viable or strong sort of careers education framework for that, one way of reaching everyone is to embed it within mainstream teaching. Obviously that's not an uncontroversial idea. Some people wouldn't agree that that's the job of science. But I think it does raise questions about what, what is school science for? What are we trying to teach young people to, to, to be, I would say, rather than to know? But, uh, that's a, a potential one. I think for those involved both in school science and in um, STEM enrichment or interventions more generally, I think it's a very simple message of promoting the idea that science keeps options open could be quite useful. And um, I don't think that message is actually widely known. Our research doesn't suggest that it is. Um, but to do these sorts of things, if you're going to embed STEM careers awareness, if you're going to promote these messages, you can't just tell all teachers, poor old teachers of you know, hard pressure upon as it is, just to go and do it. It does have to be done in a very supportive and enabling way. So it's not, um, I don't think it's just a quick fix in, in that sense. As I said before, more better and earlier careers education um, could be useful. I think there is a case for high-quality STEM careers education. I don't think there's. I don't think most children get much of that at the moment. I think they could get more. And um, I would like to see it targeted at the socially disadvantaged groups because the independent schools in our study, they were all doing it. They had fantastic STEM careers, very much targeted STEM careers education programmes going on. Those kids were getting it. And I, they, I think it it's increases those disparities about who doesn't. And I think working with families, again, particularly for people involved in STEM interventions or enrichment more broadly, I think a lot of the time we've tended to focus on the young person rather than them as an embedded person within families. And that's just some references if you're interested from our study. And then there's just some websites at the end. Thank you so much, Louise. That was so interesting and um, so many important ideas, but so accessible in terms of the way you presented that. So a lot of uh, a lot of issues for us to think through. I wonder if I can um, uh, just uh, suggest that we spend five minutes having a little bit of a 
um, a kind of buzz just to get our heads around some of the things that Louise has, has spoken about, um, just in pairs um, for a moment, just to kind of reflect on some of the things that you think are especially important. And then we'll have questions for Louise in five minutes. <laughs> All right, great. Um, um, it's so nice to hear that everybody was so enjoying their conversations. And like I said, we're going to have more time for that after the tea break as well. Um, but we have about 10 minutes to take any questions directly to Louise or comments or reflections. So can I invite you then to um, raise any points that you would like to? This is sort of a bit of a reflection and a question. One of the things seems to me is the only place that you're able to use their science in school is in science. And that, I think, is a problem because if you think about STEM, there should be the opportunity to use your science in other subjects, particularly design and technology. Um, and I just wonder whether if you're going to become a participator in science, then using it for other than just scientific things might be quite an interesting mm -hmm. thing to explore with teachers yeah. and particularly with, with the pupils. But you would need design technology teachers mm. to talk to science teachers and vice versa to work yeah. out mm. a good deal because unless it's a two-way street I don't think the time and effort would yeah. sort of... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that would be useful as well because definitely on our survey design and technology is the most popular subject so I think <laughs> you could link, make links like that. I know other projects have looked at um, doing much closer integration of science and maths so teaching, you know, the teaching maths and science and yeah, teaching yeah. science and maths as well so yeah, no, good point. Can I just ask, sorry, I should have said, can you just say who you are and yeah, where I'm, you're from? I'm David Barlix, and I used to direct the Nuffield Design Technology Project, which is why I made in the DT flag. Mm -hmm. um, but I started my professional career as a science teacher, oh, so okay. I've got a, a foot in both camps. And yeah. it seems to me there's just so many missed opportunities to get kids pumped up both about the tech and the mm -hmm. science mm -hmm. because we operate in silos. Um, but the big thing I think about STEM is that it, it should break those silos down. But the problem is some people see STEM full stop mm. between the letters. And I think that could be really valuable as well for a promoter message that science qualifications are useful for jobs, not just in science, but Absolutely. beyond science. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's making that connection that's involved because not everyone wants a career in science. Not no. everyone is going to <coughs> watch it. But yeah, for, for the transferability message, I think that would help too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that follows on from it. In, in that sense, at the beginning you said scientists always laugh when they say science is inaccessible, but it is inaccessible and it's inaccessible because our knowledge is so compartmentalised that I was saying to Claire that when I went to a printmaking class they told us to do this, this and this and if you say, well what am I putting the metal plate in and what is it doing? They don't want to know. I know this isn't at school level, but everything is... We don't explain things in scientific terms. Everything we do is done is you do this, you do that, and out, and out it comes. But we never talk about things. And we don't talk about the tables and chairs in scientific terms. We don't talk about why IKEA furniture t falls apart. We just say it's cheap and nasty. And, it's, and we talk about it in so social terms because, you know, it's got to have a short life so people can make more profit. But we never talk about why the things fall a bit physically or anything like that. And so I think it's because it's been pushed out. It's been pushed out because it's been seen as a bit geeky. But it's, 
it's very hard to bring it back in. And what's replaced it is, as I was saying, if you see the adverts on TV for Globidin makes your hair better, well, Globidin isn't science. Goodness knows what it is. Somebody just made it up. But it, it serves to make science more inaccessible because it's, it's the profit-making machine has actually made nonsense and gobbledygook out of a science whereas kids should actually know whether this stuff makes your hair dry or not and it's polluting the world and I think there's a challenge in that science too because science, a lot of science has, science has high status and prestige and some of that comes from the fact it is associated as this sort of elite sort of distant brainy space so actually, to make science more accessible, in a sense, you're, you're, you're asking science to lose some mm. of that mystique and some of that, mm. the distance or the, the, you know, the, 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 yeah, the kind of, um, not, not the jargon, but you know, the, 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 the otherworldliness of it that's associated with the te- you know, technical terms and so on. So it's, it's not a simple effort in that way either. And when you do have efforts... Like um, the the recite, you know, the 21st century science curriculum that's introduced. You have things that try and make how science works, introducing those sorts of things. Some sort of the science world turn around and go, well, that's not proper science, you know, that's the most <laughs> So you have this tension between, yeah, we want everyone to want to do it, but you know. we need our expertise. <laughs> yeah. We need to be acknowledged yeah. for our expertise. Okay, we've got several questions. So this one and then. This one and then this one. And should we just take them all together so we have time? And yeah. then, Louise, you can collect them so, all. Uh, my name is Sandy Sullivan from the Faculty of Science at the University of Sheffield. And I just want to mention uh, some projects that have worked on Sheffield. Where we, uh, so one of the projects was uh, on synthetic biology, uh, basically bringing synthetic biology to primary schools, where we worked with creative companies and with uh, theatre companies and, and scientists from our faculty. And the idea was very much to get the pupils to be the scientific biologists of tomorrow and to let them play with scientific ideas, let them explore the possibilities and the implications. And what was fascinating because they were kind of provided some of the concept of synthetic biology, but very much like as much as the scientists know themselves about synthetic biology, but then it was about how am I going to use this technology myself as a ten-year-old to do something that's useful, that you know can change society, can change the way we do science, but also looking at the implication of the science, so getting them engaged in ethical debate about the impact of science, and what I thought and. And we use we use uh, puppetry, we use dancing, music, drama, and again, kind of using the doors of play to use scientific concepts. So there wasn't, in a way, they were not scientific facts we were trying to transmit. It's about it was really, in a way, aspiring was about playing with ideas, trying to think how things could work and the difference it can make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll hold on to that and then. Hi, my name's Tara. I'm Head of Wagon Participation at the University of Oxford. Um, I've got quite a random question to ask you, because uh, I'm more of a generalist rather than a scientist, but I'm quite interested in the whole concept of, we've got the science bit, the kids, we know they like the science and it seems to be coming out as quite popular, so it's more that issue around careers. Um, and we were talking, you were talking earlier, very jokingly, in European statement about the kind of, um, 50% of the kids wanted to be famous and that, that role around popular culture. Did you happen to notice if there was a CSI effect in the questioning? Yes. 
and what, what was the general feeling or, or what was coming out from Brenda's from sorry is it alright to, to respond or should I do my point um you can go ahead. Yes, I mean, look, I think, and I, I don't think it's particularly child sign, but yeah, lots more kids than you'd expect want to go into forensics. They're interested in forensics as an area because of CSI. Um, but I, I don't think they necessarily have a good idea of what that would actually mean. I don't know. I've never read someone else's paper. He said they all, they all end up in, on courses. Those ones who are attracted by CSI tend to drop out. Thank you for the uh, reference to the careers aid. Um, that's I'm a careers advisor by training, and by the time I get them in year 10, if I was lucky, in year 11, it's too, too late to often to do much about these choices. Um, I want, my question was really about location and what difference that made. And I guess I'm referring here to sort of personal experience of being born and brought up in the countryside with science all around us and I wondered it was a national project wasn't yeah. it just not just one so I wondered if there were um, areas where perhaps there was an industrial link with strong science or you know agricultural areas or those sorts of things where you saw any difference in the responses in terms of what they could relate to something um, I mean, as you might expect, generally, like um, one of our research sites was um, down on the south coast near um, in, a, in an army uh, naval area, and lots more of our kids, proportionally, start to um, armed forces careers there. So, yeah, local, bit, if there were big local employers, or that lots of, but, but more, more important, lots, that lots of their families were employed in. That was the key. So, I think often. Um, we, we talk about location, but even the, the physical spaces are very much structured by class race gender. If no one from your school goes, their family work at the big, you know, chemical plant around the corner, then that almost won't be seen. So I think it's very much a social geography, let's say, mm-hmm. um, that, that can be, is very powerful. Did you want to make any reflections um, on? Um, I think my only comment was very interesting. Yeah. Um, good, uh, obviously, good science teaching, pedagogy, creative things are, are all good. Uh, I suppose I, our point as well just would keep coming back to if it can also transfer, uh, convey the transferability too, then that might even that out on top. But it sounds very interesting. You would perhaps want to make a point that synthetic biology is going to change the world. I mean, it's such a disruptive technology. The, the fact that you do the prime structure, I think, is wonderful. I mean, you know, I mean, again, I think that it's, I mean, for me, it's about empowering them in, in terms of the, you know, it's about you uh, as a potential scientist, but it's about you as a citizen. What kind of yeah. science do you want, you know, to be, to be done? And, you know, it's so knowing about science and being able to feel that you can engage in conversation mm-hmm. about it really matters. And, um, you know, for me, it's not about convincing them to study science. No, it's no, convincing them to engage in discourse about yeah. science. It's, it's showing why science is important for citizenship, which I think is what mm-hmm. science curriculum should be doing. Mm-hmm. I think so it should be science and technology, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I think it, it doesn't stop at the science. It plays out in society through the technologies that we choose to use. But I think, that, and I think there are related to that. Um, scientific literacy competencies that not all children are getting by GCSE. Um, you know, I'd like to see more done after that. And I even think, I know that if, if you study the applied route, you're more likely to get that, but is that in triple science? Is, is that notion there as well? Where 
And again, I'm sort of concerned by the curriculum moves which are trying to go down the route of it's about the content you learn, and it's you know I think that's all worrying for that precise agenda. So mm. it should be much more like your your, your version. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you to everybody for those questions. Thank you to Louise.